Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And before I turn this over to Lex, I'm going to first do something that I've never done before, and that is to give a plug to a company uh, to which my only connection really is as a customer. That company is PAX, P-A-X, and they are the makers of my favorite portable vaporizer. Uh, they're not paying me to do this, by the way. <laughs> now, I've owned a PAX 1, and now I'm using a PAX 2. Uh, but in all honesty, I've never tried the PAX 3. Uh, a friend of mine has one, says it's great. But here's why I'm mentioning them right now. They just announced that from today through the 31st of this month, which here in the States is Memorial Day, the PAX company will be donating all not just a few percent, but all of their net profits during this period to veteran-approved charities. And on top of that, they are giving a 20% discount to veterans on their PAX 2 and PAX 3 vaporizers. So, uh, if you're in the market for a good portable vaporizer, well, this would be a good time to make your move. Now, uh, for our podcast today, which comes again from the Symposia team's Blue Dot Tour, uh, it takes them to Boulder, Colorado, where adventurous psychonauts gathered to tell a few interesting stories. And while the tour itself is coming to an end, Lex tells me that he has recorded a, a whole lot of really great material while on his travels, and uh, we'll be hearing it in the months ahead. Now, there still are three cities left on the Symposia's tour schedule, uh, so if you're in uh, Charleston, South Carolina tomorrow night, or Nashville, Tennessee on the 25th, or for the last stop of the tour in Baltimore, Maryland on June 2nd, well, you still have a chance to tell your stories at one of their gatherings. And uh, even if you don't want to tell a story of your own, these events are really great places to find some of the others. I was at their stop in San Diego, and, uh, well, I met dozens of interesting people there some of whom were brave enough to get up and tell us their own tales of adventure and fun. So now let's join a few of the good citizens of Colorado and find out what Rocky Mountain High really means. I'm Lex Pelger of Symposia, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. This week is another set of our storytelling events from the Blue Dot Tour, and I'm pleased to be presenting some from Boulder, Colorado. We had the pleasure of being in a classroom at Naropa University, one of the most intriguing, strange, craziest colleges, I believe, in the United States. And we were hosted by NAPS, the Naropa Alliance for Psychedelic Studies. This was an especially intriguing mix, because not only was it youth from the university, but a number of elders from the local Boulder community came out as well. Plus, we had a hat trick from the family of my editor, Zoe Platic. Not only did her father lead us off with an amazing story about knowing all of these people throughout the psychedelic renaissance and the psychedelic revolution, but then a little bit later, his daughter Zoe shared about one of her first hard trips and how her mother helped her. And finally, her mother got up to share about the beginnings of their psychedelic romance. And those family stories around psychedelics that I think can be so important. They hint at what so often happens in indigenous cultures where relatives get to know each other 
through the auspices of these psychoactive experiences. So please enjoy this set of stories from Boulder, Colorado. So I got a lot of stories, but I came to the conclusion that I need to tell this one. And its seed is, I guess, in the roots of just high school, middle school, I'm not sure when, but at some point when I was in my younger days, one of my best friend's dads told me I should read electric coolant acid test. And I don't know, apparently I was showing signs of something. And then right after I graduated high school, I got myself, I bought a copy of On the Road and One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest and then checked out um, electric coolant acid test from the library. I ended up getting through One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest and uh, On the Road, but not finishing electric coolant acid test. And I was totally taken by Kesey's writing and Kerouac's writing, and then over, I went to college, and over the years, then got into uh, Ginsburg and started to really understand the beats and um, Cassidy and then Kesey and like kind of all of their place in the mythos that is the kind of psychedelia and culture of the 60s. And so then, after all of that, I've come to, I went, it was my like, Christmas break of my junior, maybe senior year in college, and I was f finally getting around to reading Electric Coolant Acid Test, and it was like four years later, and then the opening scene of the book is, there's a, they're in a garage, and there's this frantic kind of, probably jazz type music going on, and there's this guy just beating um, on some steel, just to the rhythm of it, and then it reveals that the character is Neil Cassidy, and after all these four years of reading and starting to understand these characters, it all just kind of clicked and I could see the threads in between all of it. And so during like um, Christmas break and I'm getting to the end of the book of Electric Blood Acid Test and I've got like 40 pages left and then a friend calls me up and says he's got some water, which is just like, holy shit, and it was not going to be my first experience with it, with blotter, but when the universe just like hands you a watermelon, you got to take a swing at it. And so I just instantly went and met up with my friend and picked up the blotter, it was like two tabs, not that much, but I went home, finished the last 40 pages of the book, and then dosed almost instantly uh, after the book. And then within an hour or so, I got started to get sent into a journey that was like one of the deepest journeys of my life. And at one point I was listening to um, the greatest hits of Hurdy Gurdy Man, um, Donovan, yeah, Donovan's greatest hits. And the song Season of the Witch came on and talking about having to put all the stitches together and just the cosmic threads and everything and just all the threads of my life were just coming together and spinning around and just seeing the threads of all of it and the, uh, the beats and literature and that's kind of always my first impulse was literary culture and medicine and that kind of, again, that magazine that I'm founding is all about pre bringing literature back into the festival community and grounded educational medicine community. And uh, then after, so as that song's going on, Season of the Witch, at some point, 
I meet the uh, energetic presence of Kerouac, Kesey, Ginsburg, and Cassidy, and they're just kind of these light, pinky hue beings, and I'm just like on the floor, just like in total awe, just like, whoa, what's happening? And just kind of feel like entered into their into that energy of writers and echelon of cultural reality. And then after that, I'm laying on my floor and I feel this energy kind of white light just pulling me forward and then it comes and smacks me right in the third eye and knocks me out of my body where I'm looking at myself third person overlooking the earth and then it zooms back into the earth really quickly and it's just a large field of green grass with an outcropping of rocks in the shape of a heart and there's two skeletons holding hands which I associate with the Grateful Dead because I had just been reading electrocooled acid test. And one of them is growing a beard and one of them isn't, so I can tell that there's like a male-female aspect within all of this. And I just instantly think, I'm gonna meet the love of my life. And that whole vision happened in like 30 seconds, like on a minute, which is like flash stop motion animation, just like And then I just came back to my body, which is like, whoa, that was crazy. And I didn't quite know what to think of it. And then six months later, I just graduated college and I was sitting and just and moved into a new apartment in Iowa City, which is where I did my undergraduate uh, studying theater. Um, and I'm sitting there and there is a sliding glass door on the first night uh, that I moved into this apartment and I get a knock on the door and it's um, an Asian man who can't speak much English because he's a transfer student and I get that he wants to borrow an internet cord to see if it, his internet works and it's just weird and like what's going on here? And it turns out, I feel like it was kind of like that story of like, you know, if you meet a someone along a path that is in need, and if you offer that person in need, it's kind of, it's actually a god or a goddess in disguise, and you meet those needs, and then your dreams are manifested through giving. And then, I saw so giving the cord, and then there's a house party uh, right next door. So then I go over there, and I'm standing there, and a tie-dye shirt with a, beard, with a beard that's just starting to be able to freshly grow. Because that's also part of the whole thing, was that I saw the skeleton with a beard. And I always had sideburns and facial hair, but like a beard wasn't really able to start growing until this fall. And I'm standing there, and next thing I know is I see this woman in white just walking up to me like on a beeline. And I can just see this radiant light, and she walks up to me, and she goes... Do you have a scale? And I did. I like to, when uh, my in-laws and people like ask me how I met, I say she we met asking for a proverbial cup of sugar. And she had friends, She had just moved uh, to Boulder from uh, to Iowa City, which is just a whole other story. And we just instantly connected into that night. And she was then. And I was like, when I saw her, I was like, oh man, I hope she doesn't have a boyfriend. She was still was with. The father of my stepdaughter and now we've been together since 2010 and just and we're all families just connected and growing and it all just continues to unfold and kind of what I, the conclusion of this story is just about how the medicine when you're in the work it'll just call to you and like the signs are very hard to miss when you're just like deep in it and it just keeps calling us forward and just gotta keep leaning into the fear and watch it flower blossom. Thank you so much.
I had my uh, first psychedelic experience in the spring of 1961 as part of the Harvard Psilocybin Project uh, directed by Timothy Leary. Um, <laughs> so if you, if you could do the arithmetic, you see that I've been in this conversation for 56 years. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to condense that into 15 minutes. But, um, the person that I knew nothing about, or nor did anybody else, in 1961. Uh, let me just back up a second. Timothy Leary came to Harvard in 19, the academic term, 60-61. And he began his work with psilocybin there. And he, he got, gathered around a bunch of graduate students from the Center of Personality Research. That's where he was located. Um, and then, he, then when he had a cadre, he decided that the next thing to do is to uh, turn on as many influential, I'm not the influential person, the many influential <laughs> people as he could. For example, jazz musicians. Uh, Thelonious Monk was one of his great um, conquests. And uh, <laughs> religious leaders. Uh, Zalman Shakta, who was the founder of Jewish Renewal, was another one of his conquests at that time. Um, and Houston Smith. Houston Smith was a professor of philosophy at MIT. I was an MIT undergraduate at the time. Uh, I want to use that word undergraduate carefully. Uh, as you may know, if you know the history, Leary and Alpert were dismissed from Harvard. One of the charges against them was that they had promised not to give uh, psychedelic drugs to undergraduates. Well, that, that was interpreted as undergraduates at Harvard. I was, I, was, <laughs> I was an undergraduate at MIT, and I had been very close with Houston Smith for, for a while. Um, I, I'm a mathematician. Uh, I got my math, undergraduate mathematics degree at MIT. I got my PhD at Stanford University. I was a, uh, a NATO postdoctoral fellow at the University of Paris and then Oxford University the next year. Then I went back to MIT to teach for one year. And then I went to Cornell University where I spent 35 years on the faculty as a mathematician. So I was very, ma I was at MIT, very mathematical person. Uh, but Houston Smith came there and he started giving this year long course in um, the religions of man. That's the original title of his book. If you look, you'll see he retitled it World Religions a little later on. Uh, the, the idea was the religions of man. He didn't want to have that to take there. Uh, um, and when he, when he actually taught his class, you know, you, you, could take, you, could, you can go and take a class on religion. And, oh, this is a Buddhist university, right? You can go take a class on religion, and they'll, they'll say things like, well, Buddhism teaches such and such. Um, Hinduism teaches such and such, and so on down the line. Houston Smith had participated in each one of these religions. Uh, the 10 years before he came to MIT, he was at the University of St. Louis. It's either Washington University or George Washington University. I always get it confused. There's two schools in America that have the same name. One's in Washington, D.C., but the other one is in St. Louis. And he was, um, he, he, he had as his teacher a, a Hindu Swami from the Ramakrishna Society in St. Louis. He also spent a lot of time in a Zen monastery, Rinzai Zen, in Japan. Um, he had gone everywhere in the world, and when it came to religion, he did it. So when he spoke, 
he didn't say things like Buddhists and teachings such and such. He spoke as a Buddhist. In fact, if you go on, uh, the, Bill Moyers made a series on, on Houston Smith, and um, uh, it, it, it was put out on DVD, and, and now I think you can get it on YouTube, if you look for it, and it's a very good, it's worth, worth it. By the way, you saw his book there, Cleansing the Doors of Religion. Cleansing the Doors of Perception. Yes. Uh, so, that was, that was, people in the class, a lot of them were foreign students. Now, there were no foreign students in America in, in, in the late 50s and early 60s, very few. They had to be pretty wealthy and pretty established in their own country. So they came there, but the thing about people coming from foreign countries is that they're very religious, because they come from traditional societies. And many of these people had things that were given to them by their family. Oh, you're going among the agnostics. Here, here's a, 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 something to take with you, a relic or so on. And they would bring it in to Houston Smith. I saw this one Egyptian uh, fellow. He was a Coptic Christian. And he brought in an illustrated Coptic manuscript like you'd find in the British Museum. It was museum quality. And when he handed it to Houston Smith to look at, his face lit up like a child who had just got like ice cream or something like that. This, this to him was the biggest thing they could have. And when the fellow said, oh, you could take it home, you just return it next week or something like that, he was in seven heaven. Okay. Uh, the next, I took those two courses. And then the, the third course I took was this very small seminar in Meadowlands. And in that seminar, we went through a whole bunch of metaphysicians like, like Alfred North Whitehead and Hegel from the 19th century, uh, and also a thing on mysticism. Well, now, I knew that Houston Smith was a friend of Aldous Huxley, and I didn't know, I didn't know at the time, I, didn't, I had not yet read the book, uh, <coughs> Huxley's book, you know, Doors of Perceptions, The Cleansing of the Doors of Perceptions and Play on the Words. Um, but I just knew one fact, that, you, that Huxley, Huxley, drugs, and mysticism was sort of connected. And I went over to, uh, I had, you, had, you had to, it was like a tutorial with your professor. I went with you, one day I was with Houston Smith. I said to him, by the way, what do you think about this thing with drugs and mysticism? And he said, oh, it's interesting, you should ask. There's a project over at Harvard where they're exploring exactly that. And I said, oh, he said, would you like, oh, there's a meeting tonight. Would you like to come? Alan Watts will be speaking. Now, Alan Watts had always been a big, i always been a big fan of Alan Watts. I mean, until I found out that he was a chronic alcoholic and did not practice Buddhism at all. But besides that, <laughs> I was always a big fan of Alan he, he could speak. He, he was like a Terrence McKenna. Okay, so I went there. I saw Alan Watts speak. But the interesting thing, oh, and Timothy Leary at that time was completely buttoned down. He looked like a Harvard professor, you know, tie, everything you can imagine. Um, I never expected that he would become as, I don't know, scandalous as, as he became. Uh, but it was the people around, the people around him, the, the students that he had collected, they looked at him like, uh, I don't know, maybe when St. Paul went to some of Athens and the early Christians came out, oh, he's here, St. Paul is here. <laughs> they, they were very smitten. So the, 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 a couple of days later, Houston said, would you like to try it? You know, I said, yeah, I guess so, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I had no idea. I mean, I just, there was nothing. There was no Life magazine on it. Oh, there was that one on mushrooms, but that was from 54. 
for Gordon Ross and Montaigne. Seems basic. Um, I said, yes. He said, okay, come over, we'll come over. We set a time. I came over to his house. Now, to come to a, I'm working class. I had never been in a, anybody who had a profession. I mean, when working class people don't have professions. They, they just have a job. <laughs> uh, so I, to, to go to a professor's house, it was a big deal. And I walked up to it, I didn't have a car, I was poor. I walked up to it, and in the window was one of those Nadarajans. You know, Nadarajans, the dancing Shiva, dancing out in the world. I said, they live in a very middle class neighborhood. They look at that and see any other you know, Hindu things in the window. So I went in there, and his wife, Kenya, was there. And um, I had no preparation whatsoever. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, he put the pills in the suicide from the Sandoz you know, company itself, that was the bottle. He put it on the table, and I said, and I said, well, what do I do? I mean, nobody came and put earphones on me or put a blinder on me. Or I said, well, what do you do? I said, how many do you take? He said, take as many as you like. I said, oh, give me a hint. I said, uh, how much was the most that anybody ever took? So I get the upper and lower bound. And he said, well, Thelonious Monk, who is very... Uh, uh, knowledgeable about drugs, took a certain amount. I think he said 15 pills. So I took 16. <laughs> I thought he meant knowledgeable about drugs. I thought it meant that, that he would need a, a lot, a little, I don't know. Yeah, a little. If there was no knowledge about drugs, he would need a little. So that would be the bottom line, was, was, it was 16. I didn't know it was the top line. Um, but now, I'm not going to go through the actual trip. You've all read enough trip reports. But I'll tell you some facts about it that I think are really interesting. Set and setting. There I was in a professor who I admired, loved, respected, in his house. And I felt at the time there weren't any astronauts, but there was an astronaut program. I don't think John Glenn actually got around the Earth. And when the, when, I, when, the, when the experience started happening, the thing that went through my mind is, I'm doing this for humanity. I'm doing this for science, because I'm a scientist. I'm doing this for science. Um, uh, I'm like an astronaut. And, and it's interesting that the word psychonaut was coined by a German, actually. Uh, who, it was actually earlier than that, but nobody in America knew the word. Uh, I was a friend of, uh, of this writer who was a friend of Hoffman in, in, in Germany, coined the term psychonaut. Um, anyway, it was a truly moving experience. Um, all I would say is, I certainly stopped becoming a materialist of any sense. And even with the, some, some, some modern philosophers don't like to be called materialists either. They call themselves a physicalist. That the physical world is, is the thing that they're talking about, uh, that they're concerned with. Well, I certainly became much more of a mentalist. That the, what was absolutely real was the psyche, the mind. And even all your perceptions is what you see in it. But the point is, set and setting. I had a beautiful set. I had a beautiful setting. I didn't have to work on it. You, you see the movie about taking these patients and, and <clears throat> giving them psilocybin. All the work they have to do to sort of filter out all the propaganda that they've heard about psychoactive drugs, in particular psychedelic drugs. You know, they, they, have a, they have to have a physician there. They have to have a therapist constantly with them, and so on. In fact, okay, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Um, so the sentence setting were perfect. 
nothing bad about the experience whatsoever. I redid it with him, though he was away, with his wife, um, a few, a few, about a month later. Then I went off to graduate school, because I was a graduating senior. And when I got to Stanford, there was nobody around in, the, in that area that I, that I could find who knew anything about psychedelic drugs. The one person I did find was a man named Willis Harmon. Uh, he was an electrical engineer, and uh, a professor of electrical engineering, and he was associated with this little institute that they set up in Menlo Park to give LSD, LSD experiences to people where they had a doctor on the premises, they had therapy, they had everything that you see here. That's, it was all done in 1962. It was, it was the fact that this black, dark age that came between them, that now it has to be rediscovered and, and, and redone. Um, I didn't go to that place because they charged $500 for the session at the same time I knew acid was being sold in the street for $5. <laughs> and I'm a poor graduate student. But when I was a graduate student, I didn't take, I, I, I met all these people, but I did not take drugs while I was a graduate because I had to write a PhD thesis. I, I had to be a mathematician, but I waited. Um, and when I finished my thesis, I got more into the scene. And that was four years later, or five years later. So I got more into the scene, and then it was a big scene. When I first moved to uh, Stanford, I had a child and a wife, and we, uh, I, I, we put in to go to marriage student housing. Uh, but it wasn't available. So we had a little apartment in, in Palo Alto. So when I got back on the path, as it were, I asked, where, where, you know, I found out the places where I can get um, LSD, which I hadn't taken yet. I'd only been suicidal. And I went, the guy says, can you come with me? We'll go there. And I went to this place, and all of a sudden I realized it's the house that I lived in the first year I was at Stanford. And not only that, I went upstairs and I found the people who were living there. It was these grungy people um, who, who had a band called the Warlocks. Grateful <laughs> Dead. Uh, um, and they're in, the, they're in the, the, the nursery room with my little daughter, Barbara, who's now a Jungian therapist, who she was listening to. A little crib used to be. There was this guy called Pigpen. And he was sprawled out there. <laughs> it was disgusting. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, I met the guy who made the stuff, the Owsley. I said, I said, oh, I want to ask you a question. Uh, I'm very happy that you're doing this and you're selling it because I wanted to buy it and try it. But, 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 do you sell it to everybody who comes in the door? And he said, yes, of course. But I want to spread the, you know, maximize the exposure. And I said, well, I don't know about that because I know, I, I knew people, some people get in trouble with psychedelics. They truly do. I have a very close friend who committed suicide, uh, psychedelics. I had people who never recovered, um, the life was sort of went downhill. In fact, I know people from the late 60s and the hippie era who are still living today as if it was 1968. There's been no change in their life. They think I'm the one who fell off the truck. <laughs> but anyway, and he said to me, this is always these words, he said, there's no trouble you can get into with LSD that you can't get out of with LSD. Oh. oh. <laughs> Okay. Uh, a little while later, they had, the reason I'm bringing this up, you mentioned the electric Kool-Aid test. They had one, they had an acid test in Palo Alto, and I, and I went to it because the, I met these people in, in the, the Warlocks and so on, they told me to come over, and I did. 
It was the worst thing I had ever seen in my life. You have no idea. These were these were teeny bombers. These were they were the high school kids. They just came in there and it was in the Kool-Aid and they took it and so on. The music was awful. The, the, the warlocks were not yet quite the Grateful Dead. The, the music, you know, but worse than that, it seemed to me that their 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 method was to try with set with sensory overload to try to break people apart. You know, know them and, and, and give them the drug and play this very, very loud, raucous music. I'm sure when they have this tape that they give to people, John Hopkins, it, it doesn't include music like that. And I saw people freaking out. About the only interesting thing about going, I left, I, I wouldn't stay. But about the only interesting thing about going there is I did meet Neil Cassidy. And Neil Cassidy was, I, I, I understood when, when in literature, when the word speed freak came out a few years later, I understood what that meant, remembering Neil Cassidy. Neil Cassidy didn't take any, any, any psychedelics. He loaded himself up with, you know, he was the driver of the truck, of the bus, when they had further. They go across the country, they could sleep, he could drive. You know, he just kept driving and driving. Um, so I, I thought that was not going to come to a, to, to a good end. Um, and this whole idea of, you know, the French have the epithet de bourgeoisie, because you, you, you do things to like really rattle the bourgeoisie, you know. You do things, and, and they were doing it. I said, no, no, no. The bourgeoisie rattled bigger than you could. They're going to rattle your cage bigger than they, than they. Okay. And it was at that same time that Leary took on these messianic qualities. And I am very ambiguous about typically Leary. If you if you talk to the people in the, the medical psychedelic community. They will say Timothy, oh, Timothy Leary, he set back research and for 20, decades, and now it's on schedule one. Oh, we're going to get it on schedule two. A few people know your drug schedules. Schedule two is not a place you want to be either. <laughs> uh, cocaine's on schedule two. It just means it has some medical use. So, yeah, it's the first thing you got to do. I mean, if you go down that road, you got to have some medical use. Uh, what was I saying? <laughs> oh, Timothy Leary. Um, I met him, there was a time with my relationship with him that I wouldn't go anywhere near him. I mean, if I saw him come into a room, I left the room. Um, I didn't like the way he was presenting himself as a guru, because I know gurus, I mean real gurus. I know spiritual people, um, and they weren't like that at all. Uh, if you ever seen the Dalai Lama, you wouldn't... Uh, he came to he came to see you last year or year before. You would never confuse him with Timothy Leary. On the other hand, on the other hand, I wouldn't be here today if Timothy Leary had the sense to turn me on by bringing psilocybin uh, to to Harvard and, and making it available for these people. And thousands of thousands of people were turned on by him in these public events and so on. But these public events, you know what they were like? If you read the history of religion in America, there's been several great awakenings. When, when, when preachers came, and they, um, uh, the first great awakening was the early part of the 18th century. Uh, this, this Methodist preacher, George Whitefield, from England came, and what's the guy, Jonathan Edwards, he was the American one. And then the second one came in the early part of the 19th century, and it was really big, much bigger than the first one. Uh, and a lot of things came out of that, such as uh, LDS and Mormons, uh, Joseph Smith had been to many of these revivals that were having, 
and uh, he went into the, the forest to ask uh, for guidance of where he should be. He says, you don't belong in any of these churches. You're going to have your own church. <laughs> but so, And then there was a fourth, there was a third Great Awakening in the end of the 19th century where the social gospel was introduced, which is why you have like food kitchens and churches and things like that. And Timothy Leary was trying to make the fourth Great Awakening. And what his events were, were exactly that. They were, they, were, they, were, they were like the things you would see if you went in the South to a tent and you saw, oh, my favorite guy is Jimmy Swaggart. I love Jimmy Swaggart. <laughs> he said Jews will never go to heaven. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'll put it in my um, Anyway, so I don't know what effect he really had. There was all this nonsense about when he went to jail. Oh, and I was very disappointed when he was, went to jail and that the academic community didn't come forward in any way to support him, which is what you would do for other writers and so on when they get in trouble. But, as you probably all know, he got out of jail by giving information to the authorities on people who had helped him out, like the lawyer who had smuggled in LSD to the jail for him. He gave him his name, the guy, according to what I understand, was debarred and things like that. So he has a, and then after he came out, a broken man, he became an entertainer, really. And uh, when I met him again at, at, at Cornell, when he came there, he was talking about space exploration and colonization and things like that. And I'm sure he tied it in his own line with psychedelics, but he never mentioned them again because that was a condition for him to be released. He, he, could, talk, he could talk any nonsense he wants as long as he doesn't mention drugs. Um, Oh, I think I better. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, oh! One more thing. No, no, very important. Um, I gave up drugs for twenty-five years. I had, I didn't have a joint, and believe me, I was a good user. There was no drug on the scene at that time that I didn't try, because I always considered from a scientific point of view. Uh, <laughs> well, part of it was. Uh, um, what was I saying? I tried years because I met a spiritual teacher. He didn't insist on it, but, but, but um, I saw what it did. I saw it meditation, day, daily meditation, and uh, long, long meditations on certain, certain weekends and so on. And I saw what deep study in, in, in the traditional texts did to a person. It, it's, not, it's wrong. They're wrong. Psychedelic experience is not a mystical experience. It's a prelude. A mystical experience is extremely calm, totally calm. The mind doesn't move. And it takes, and, and uh, there were times on Ayahuasca that I did have um, the mind not moving, but not for long. <laughs> anyway, so I did that uh, for 25 years, and then I decided it was time to write up my life's thought on all of these psychedelics. But I realized I hadn't had psychedelics in 25 years. So what am I going to do about that? I mean, I can't remember anything. Well, so I moved, we moved to Maui. We lived in Maui for 12 years. We just got to Boulder three years ago. Um, I uh, harvested uh, the, the roots and the leaves for ayahuasca and made it. And I had a regular regimen of using it once a week uh, for a few months, right? Something like that. My wife, well, I did it with a friend. A friend who, by the way, graduated from Naropa. When he graduated from Naropa, he was a uh, trained as uh, a caregiver, you know, uh, and he took care of me. You know, he, did, he took the he took the medicine too, 
but he, he took care of me, and that was a very fruitful thing. And many of my thoughts on psychedelics and so on uh, snapped into place. But I hope if I live long enough, I'll be able to finish my book. <laughs> your typical stoner. Um, I'm not, I don't have any Birkenstocks at all. <laughs> I don't have the black thick rimmed glasses. Oh, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I'm not a man. <laughs> when I was back home, it seemed like everybody who did marijuana was a 20 year old white man. <laughs> no offense, but just like, oh, well, I'm not that, so it's, it's not for me. And then I moved to Boulder. <laughs> and, well, went in Rome, right? <laughs> so I was in Boulder for a few months, didn't do anything. And then I moseyed on down to my, dis my now dispensary of choice just started asking a lot of questions. Um, I had been in a dispensary before that. Um, it was a, a medical marijuana dispensary. And I was blown away because everybody's been to a CVS, right? Where they're like, oh, you have a cough, here you go, bye. But the medical marijuana place was like, what do you feel? What do you want to feel? What is your medical history? And they're asking, like, questions for 10, 15 minutes, really caring about your medical health. So I, I became a little curious myself. Um, so I went down to a recreational one, since I don't have one of those handy cards yet. <laughs> and I went home with a canister of gummies, and I didn't know what to do or what to think. So I did what they tell you never to do. <laughs> you take the full dosage because you have no experience with the drug whatsoever, right? <laughs> and I took it, and the first time it was just sort of strange, but like by the fourth time, I had a story to tell. And that's the story I'm going to tell you. When you have depression, or anxiety. You wake up with dread and you go to bed with dread. It's not a fun life. So you're curious as to whatever could change that, whether it be, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, whether it be Lexapro, whatever. You want it to stop. Whatever it takes, you want it to stop. So I took that gummy, not knowing what to expect. Tasted delicious, so that was good. I love candy. <laughs> that was that was the problem back because I saw all those twenty year old white dudes, and they were like, they had the vape, and I'm like, I'm a germaphobe. I don't want to touch that. Like, I don't. I want my own, my own private weed. I didn't want to share you. <laughs> I didn't like the germs, <laughs> but with the, with the gummies, it was just it was just mine. So I had that and. It was just a feeling of overwhelming balance and awe. 
Like you feel the comfort of the colors and there are no five, six, five senses anymore. They all merge. What you smell is what you taste, what you hear is what you see. Everything is the same. And yes, you do get hungry, but I'm always hungry. So I'm in a constant state of munchies. But it was more profound. It was like, I really, really, really need this snack. Like right now, this specific snack. And you just feel this sense of, it's more profound than calm. It's, it's I don't know what it is. We call it just a state of supreme gummy nirvana. I don't know. Yes, gummy nirvana. And it, the anxiety was just gone. It was just, it was gone. And was I cured in an instant? No, you know, that's, those are my demons and I'm going to have to wrestle with them probably for a long time. But for that moment at least, I had peace and balance and I could go on. I could say, I can do tomorrow. Tomorrow is possible. And that's my story. So I was just going to tell the story of the first time I consumed LSD. Um, I was young and dumb and reckless and having a great time. So my friend tells me that he has some LSD, he has a strip of acid, and I was interested, of course, like I wanted to try this. And so we go over to his house that night, and he was living in this, like, essentially a mansion at the time. There were three or four stories. Um, a dozen rooms, like it was quite a large house um, because his mom was a real estate broker and she was like moving house to house, um, selling, selling these large houses. So I was in northern Arizona. It was around this time of year, I think a little bit later. So you would expect it to be relatively warm and it was that day. Um, so we get into the night and we're lying down in his bed and he's like, let's, let's take this. And he hands me a little tap. We both put it under our tongues and we're like, do, do we swallow this? Or like, do, do we just sit it on our tongue or like let it absorb um, So we, we, we do that and um, I think we both ended up swallowing it after a little bit in, um, underneath our tongues. And um, to describe the house a little bit more, his um, anti-drug, his very anti-drug brother was sharing a room with him at the time. Um, his anti-drug brother was across the room on a bed from us, and we were both lying in his bed. Um, upstairs, upstairs, his mother, um, who was also very anti-drug, she had had um, addictive experiences earlier in life, so she was very um, hostile to any drug usage in her house at all. Um, she was up there, and right after we drop, his sister comes in. Um, and his sister, nobody had known where she was, like, nobody was really worried about it, but, like, she just kind of disappeared. That was something his sister did. She comes in the room, and she's just crying, and just wailing, and both me and him had no clue what was going on and did not really comprehend why she was upset. Um, later, we found out that apparently his sister's best friend had died that day, um, just a couple hours before, 
And so his sister's freaking out, and we are unable to comprehend exactly why she's upset. Um, so she leaves again and disappears. So that was the general mood going into this experience, um, which wasn't exactly the ideal setting, but I think it turned out all right. You know? um, so my friend, around 30 minutes later, we were watching some like television, just some patterns and listening to some music, and he falls asleep. So his brother falls asleep as well, so I'm sitting in this room alone, like right next to the wall. Um, so I'm, I'm right next to the wall, he's sitting on the edge of the bed, or he's lying on the edge of the bed, and his brother's sleeping across the room. And I'm sitting here, coming up on LSD for my first time, staring at these weird patterns on the TV, not sure what exactly I should be doing at this point, like wondering if I should be sitting here for six hours straight, just tripping balls, um, not knowing what was about to happen at all. So I end up wandering out. Um, the wind was going crazy, and I was wondering what was going on. So I wander out into the living room, and it's snowing. So like a little later than now, um, a little later than now in the year, several years ago, um, so it was summer in Arizona, and it was just pouring snow just massive amounts of snow everywhere, and uh, this was not expected. Like, this is not common. It does snow in Arizona, actually, similar amounts to here in northern Arizona, but this was just shocking and unexpected. So I'm staring outside, and it starts lightning and thunder with the snow. And this wasn't a hallucination, to be clear. When I woke up the next day, there was quite a bit of snow on the ground. <laughs> so <laughs> this was something that legitimately happened. So I go out on the balcony, um, and I'm just sitting on the balcony wondering about existence. Um, and I had all of those thoughts that everybody has on their first psychedelic experience. Oh, the universe is one. Oh, God is everything around us. And all of these things are true, not to like deny them or anything. But that was the experience I had just sitting out there, just a breathtaking experience. I was, I was dressed in something like I'm dressed today, except a little bit lighter sitting in a snowstorm at midnight in Arizona and, um, and just freezing and just staring at the clouds as lightning just strikes over and over again. So that was the peak of the experience, that craziness. So the only other notable thing that really occurred that night was I got really hungry around 2 a.m. So I start raiding my friend's fridge. And I pick out these orange fruits. They were about this big, apricots, right? You know, like, so I just start throwing them in my mouth, and I chomp down. And it turns out they were tomatoes. <laughs> and I haven't liked tomatoes since. <laughs> and that is the end of the interesting part. Um... I don't really write that poetry ever, um, but a couple months ago I took part in um, like a therapeutic ceremony with MDA or sassafras. Um, yeah, um, and it was amazing. Um, and so I decided to write a poem about it because it was just that cool. Um, okay, so my poem is called An Ode to Sassafras. Yeah. Um, 
You, the one who cosmically pokes and prods inside my brain, watering seeds of wisdom with colorful, fractal, whimsical, sacred geometric symbols. With deformed faces, demon beings, cartoon characters, and swirling furniture. With the wave of tears and screams and explosions of joyous expression. You, with the ability to witness my transience, see and love the impermanence of all that is, showing truth to those who are looking. You are a spirit, although not many recognize you as this. I see you as a scapegoat for that which remains in the dark of the human heart. A mother, fierce yet unconditionally loving. You, God's messenger, God's translator, the mystical bridge between realities. You show me that what I fear the most is also what I desire the most. Freedom, inner power, inner knowing, connection, love. You show me the unavoidability and absolute perfection of paradox. How nothing exists without its opposite. How feeling painfully insecure and divinely compassionate can and must coexist. You show me how to disengage from and witness the fight between my mind and my body, no matter how messy it is. And show me that I am not one nor the other, but rather both of them and neither of them all at once. Talk about paradox. You teach me what presence really means, that letting go, looking, and actually seeing is all it takes. Showing me not a cut and dry map of how to be present, but gifting me with a feeling, a compass, pointing to the divine primordial light within myself that is also seen in everything infinitely. You teach me to embody that which my mind thought it knew, alchemizing otherwise empty words into actual meaning, taking me blindly on a trip through the cosmos, on one on which I must either trust fully or suffer, reminding me of the obvious yet forgotten non-duality and interconnectedness of literally everything in our universe, even me, planting seeds of true knowing in my core in exactly the ways I need, but I must do the watering. You, a fierce spirit being that can heal me by destroying me, sacredly shattering the dark glass that only keeps me hidden from my infinitely connected existence. Your destruction of me is a divine blessing. You, you understand. You understand that God is you, that you are me, and that I am God all at once. Thank you, my psychedelic teacher. So I'm a senior at Naropa, um, and so tonight I'm going to do a reading from my undergraduate thesis titled Forbidden Fruits, Religion, Psychedelics, and the Power to Heal. Um, and so the narrative that I'm going to read is called The Voice Inside My Head, A Mystical Encounter with God. <clears throat> It is the night of New Year's Eve 2014, and I find myself alone in my one-bedroom apartment in California. Sitting on my couch, looking back at my spacious yet paradoxically cluttered apartment, reflecting on the past year as the clock counts down the hours until it's all over. What had, what had I accomplished? Not just in the last year, but the last two. My entire life. 
My mind had been poisoned by a great darkness that had hollowed out my soul as I drifted aimlessly through life, destroying my health with drugs and junk food, a slow suicide that would allow my evil, corrupted nature to finally evaporate from history. A deep anger and hatred had burned within me, like a hot coal at the back of a raging furnace that forever roared through the night. I had a deep loathing for myself and my own existence, but that was nothing compared to what I felt towards the people around me. Other humans who came into my life like newspapers drifting through the wind only for them to add to the chaos and the pain that had progressed the rotting wounds of my psyche. There was a cure, I remembered, as I looked up from the space before me and at my future and the year that lay ahead. I had heard of this religion known as Buddhism, hailed as the cure to ending all forms of suffering, and finally I would be free from the prison that was my existence. I would start along this path tomorrow, but in order to begin the first maiden steps upon my journey into healing, I had to put down the knife. No, I hadn't been literally drawing a knife across my wrist, but I had imagined so, and for every day for the last 10 years since I was 14 years old. I had been abusing any recreational drug I could get my hands on, from dirty cocaine that had been cut with toxic bath salts to lighter fluid that could kill me suddenly with one sniff. I had to stop trying to end my life and learn to live again. I was going to quit everything tomorrow morning, New Year's Day, but before I did so, I wanted to go out of 2013 with a bang. I remembered the bag of magic mushrooms my best friend's stepbrother had managed to score for me and quickly got up off the couch away from my overthinking and hurried over to the lockbox where I had kept everything. I hesitated for a moment as the whirling of the overhead fan filled the air and the lights illuminated the room with a bright glow. I took out a single mushroom from the plastic Ziploc bag and swallowed it, chewing it in my mouth as a slight wince crossed my face, as the strange flavor hit my taste buds. I was already in a bad place, mentally and emotionally. I found a bottle of anti-anxiety pills and downed a pill, just to be sure that I wouldn't have a bad trip. I waited for about an hour, allowing the sensation to wash over me. I managed to take out my glass pipe and fire up a bowl of medical-grade cannabis. Something must have begun to kick in because I felt the loving embrace of a familiar persona that had greeted me like I was getting back together with a long-lost love. The cannabis deity gently walked me around my house, turning off most of my lights to a dim ambiance. She then led me back to my couch where I folded my legs across one another and began to meditate as my mind left the chaos of the world that I continued to inhabit to a sanctuary within my inner being where I could finally find the peace that my spirit so desperately longed for. I had sat there for about 20 minutes as the psilocybin began to dance with the tetrahydrocannabinol as I began to come up and peek. I felt the elastic, almost taffy-like feeling as they paraded through my brain and activated an ocean of neurons, a pair of maestros conducting a grand orchestra of sensations and experience. Five more minutes had passed when reality finally broke. My mind had been a dark abyss up until that point, and then a vision had entered my mind. It was a blurry image of a large mass of people wearing red, 
A woman's voice had entered my head, and at that moment, I knew in my heart that I was hearing the voice of God, manifesting as the archetype of the divine feminine. The voice told me that she had created my soul to simply and effortlessly, unconditionally love other people, and that was all. The voice was gone, and the image faded away, and by the time the 30 minutes were up, I opened my eyes, tears streaming down my face for a deep and powerfully transformative experience had just occurred. Some divine sacred light had entered my being and had illuminated all the darkness, purifying all the hate, anger, pain, and suffering that I had endured. My grudge against the world had dissipated, and the long drag dragging depression that had clung to me like a suffocating blanket had subsided. No longer did I want to abuse recreational drugs to take my life, but to now create intentional rituals to enliven it. In a state of ecstatic joy, I reveled in the experience and journaled in my notebook so I could never forget this mystical experience. God had reached across the divide to commune with me, to remind me what I am here to do and what the purpose of my very existence was. It was an experience that had deeply changed my makeup, and I no longer was the hateful person that, that I was before, and have become a much more loving and compassionate person ever since. And while I'm sure that neuroscientists could disprove the experience's validity, it was still a real journey that had reawakened my spiritual being and belief in a higher power that had the ability to heal me in my darkest hour, <coughs> setting me upon my adventure into a lifelong future of using psychedelics to connect with the divinity within. So I recently published an article with Symposia. I shared a story about the first time that I ever did psilocybin, and it was um, connecting, to say the least. Um, the more I talk about it, the less um, magic it feels, so if you're ever curious to read it, it's on their website. But, so, um, recently I got told that Spending time with me and my partner, Justin, who's coming up next, huh. is sort of like being in a Seinfeld episode. Huh. Like, how am I supposed to take that? Am I, am I George? <laughs> but the point, the point being, I had been ruminating over that. Like, is that supposed to be offensive? Is, is it supposed to be funny? Like, what? And then I was really re-reflecting on my first psychedelic experience that I got to publish with Symposia. And... Um, so let's, let's flash forward. I am on one-eighth, which I thought that wouldn't be a lot, but apparently it knocked, knocked my socks off. Um, <laughs> precisely. Um, and I was in my parents' house, so that's probably really, really important to say. And I thought it would be a really good idea. They were sleeping downstairs. I'm like, I just, this is getting really intense. I need my dog. I just, I needed my dog more than anything. So I remember like creeping downstairs as if like this dog had the answers for me. Like he could help me ground in this situation. <laughs> he's, he's this really adorable wiener dog. Um, 
and I walk into my parents' dark room, and the hall, like the short hallway, which is only a few feet, extends to miles. And I start creeping towards their bed, and my hand is on their bed, and I'm just reaching for my dog, and it was like a thousand snakes were on that bed. I will never forget that weird sensation. <laughs> yeah, um, so I, I grabbed the dog, and I ran for my life. But they never got up, they never said anything the next day. And I'm just like wondering if they got up. And I don't know. Um, you see, I don't, nowadays I, I don't think I have any interesting stories, so that's the best that I have. I just, I thought my parents moved into some castle with snakes. Yeah. Did you pet all the dogs? I took the dog. He didn't have all the answers, yeah. but he, he didn't. No. Just so you know, just because dog is God spelled backwards, so he knows everything. Okay. This is a quick story um, about my first experience with LSD, and I was dosed. Uh, I didn't know I was buying MDMA. And they told me that it was MDMA. And so I took two, and it turned out it was LSD. And it was like midnight, which is never the way I would choose to do that. And it's a quick story because my parents are in the room. So many things happened that night. Uh, and uh, many things happened, but luckily I got back to my apartment and I was fine and wrapped in a green sheet with a cucumber and uh, all sorts of things. But at one point, I realized that the benefits of being a second generation psychonaut were that I could call my parents. And so I did call my parents, and where they were, it was much earlier in the morning than it was where I was, and yet my mother answered the phone. And I told her that I'm on LSD for the first time, I didn't expect to be this way, and at first she was like, can you have somebody who can call? Can you have somebody come over? And I was like, stop making me feel like I'm not okay. <laughs> and, uh, and she was fine with that. And so she began to, to sing me lullabies that she had sung me when I was a child and tears began sliding down my face. And I knew at that point that no matter what happened, I would be okay and I was loved. And I just have to say with gratitude that it's a really great thing to be a second generation second. My mother is Shiva, my father, Kali. This is why my car was towed from the liquor store, why I can't get it back till Friday. I learned from my brother how to eat boogers. If you have a significant struggle, you have a significant self. <laughs> so, the first time I took LSD uh, was with a friend. I had no idea what it was at all. I, I had um, marijuana before, you know, so I knew change consciousness, but I didn't know anything, anything more than that. Um, my education is mainly the world, uh, and uh, in the university. Uh, I've had some uh, courses, uh, but, but not many. And uh, I came from uh, a family that was uh, Jewish but poor, you know, with uh, 
kind of new immigrants. My father was couldn't speak English uh, very well, even until he died. And, uh, and my mother was a feeling type, a singer, uh, a loving, loving being who also ate too much <laughs> and died when I was nine years old. So, um, and my um, and my father died when I was nineteen. And in, in between there was uh, a person who became totally independent by the time I was 11. I, um, I bought my own clothes. I worked for it, you know, and had an odd job. <coughs> not the story that you would um, generally um, get from um, a Jewish I was very, very loved and, and pampered by my mother before all this happened. And then that crashed. And, you know, it, it, it sounds really, really sad when I think about it, but when I went through it, it didn't feel very sad at all. I mean, I took every single day and every single thing that happened to me as, well, this happened, that happened, you know, yes, I need to buy clothing, I need to find some way to make money so I can make the clothing, you know, so I can get clothing. And I was a very good student in school, well, a student, except for mathematics. <laughs> so I actually took a course in mathematics, and it was really funny, so I could understand what Richard did you know, a little bit more. But anyway, um, so I was out. This is this is what happened. So my friend, I was uh, living in Back Bay at the time. Um, it was in a house uh, that was run by the socialist guy, and you had to be really poor and sort of weird, you know, <laughs> to get into it. So it didn't cost very much money um, to live there. But anyway, we went for a walk on a, on a big street. I've forgotten what the name of it was. Um, and, uh, and as we walked, the top, the, uh, it started to work. And, I, um, and all of a sudden, I saw the world. And I looked up, and I saw everything. Everything was dancing. Everything was dancing. The colors were so bright. I <coughs> You know, I was I was shocked, and I said, I wondered at that point whether um, whether the world, whether I, um, um, whether the world was really that way all the time, and I can only see it now. You know, that, that some kind of something was removed so that I could understand where I really am every minute of every day. And that consciousness um, has come back to me as I age, mm -hmm. and I look at the world without LSD, and it begins dancing mm -hmm. all the time. And that was my first experience. Um, so uh, I remember that what I did was, for the first time, I, I put my hair behind, behind, my, behind my ears, you know, I wanted, I wanted 
everything that I was to be okay, you know, and um, changed my life so much. I, I became as a total introvert before him. And I became not afraid of anything or anyone anymore. I also, um, I also had much faith in myself. I understood what happened better you know, and who I was. Um, and I began meeting all kinds of crazy people from everywhere <laughs> in the whole world. You know. <laughs> I became a friend of um, I wrote to uh, the man mentioned and um, Houston Smith. Um, he stayed in our house and so forth and uh, met many, many, many people. Uh, the Dalai Lama came to the place that I studied. Uh, we invited him and he accepted. And it was, I mean, all of us invited him and he accepted. Many, many incredible and wonderful things happened because of that and because of the understanding that was given to me so unexpectedly. And that's all. So my story is about medicine. It's going to be about um, holding medicine um, and about the medicine itself. It's not exactly a chirping story, but it is about a psychedelic medicine. Um, this, this story is about toad medicine. Um, it takes place a long time ago. Um, before um, There was a time when 5-MeO-DMT was not scheduled. It wasn't that long ago. Um, this also takes place before the sham that's going on with the medicine right now and the, the false prophets that are going around the world, spreading it in fame and fortune, and leaving destruction in their ways, but I digress. Anyways, this story takes place um, in the summertime. I had a, a, um, a Chevrolet Cobra, a 78 Chevy Cobra RV, and I was traveling for the summer um, I took off and I was in Crestone for a while and I went out to Taos and it was started to rain. This is the end of July and it started, when it starts to rain, that's when the toads come out. And so I went over to this guy's house that I know and I, I walked in there and I'm like, dude, it's raining, it's raining. We gotta do something. And he's like, what are you talking about? It's raining, it's raining, dude. I didn't call him dude. He's not <laughs> the kind of person that we'd ever call dude. But, uh, but anyway, he, he's like, yeah, so? And I'm like, what's a toads? We gotta, we gotta get, gotta go, we gotta go to Arizona. And he just looks at me and he's like, yeah, you're crazy, whatever. And so, so I ended up leaving. That night I went over to his friend's house his, um, and stayed, over, stayed overnight that night. The next day, we went back to his house. It was probably around 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And as we're pulling in, he's pulling in. And he looks different, and he's got this goofy smile on his face. And we get out of the out of the car, and like, where did you? What's going on? And he's like, Come on in, I have something for you, right? And I'm thinking, you know, maybe he found some, you know, some medicine he wanted me to try, or, or you know, something like that. I walk in, and he had gone. He had left the minute I, I left his place and went to Arizona, and came back with actual toads. I was I was horrified actually. It was really just you know like like what are you doing? You know you're not supposed to do that. It's not you know the medicine's not going to be any good. You know what are you crazy? Blah blah blah. You know 
And he's like, no, I'm, I'm giving you these two toes as a present. I'm like, oh, hey, <laughs> thanks, you know? And then you're going to give me a carton for them? You know, I had to go to Walmart and get a carton and all that thing. <laughs> so anyway, I, I quickly got out of there, and I left. I went to a friend's house that night, and I was, you know, looking for crickets and, and ants, and we went and got worms, and got another container. The next morning, I, I take off in my RV. I'm coming back to Colorado from Taos. And they're in, they're in a container in the back of my RV, you know, with a top on them. Um, I had also been collecting plants and a whole bunch of things. So my, my RV was like a trailmobile. I had some, some beautiful Datura flowers that I'd found, and I had strung them with some, some beautiful fishing line, you know, going across the, across the windows. And, um, so anyways, I ended up breaking down. No, yeah, I break down at a CDOT road stop. Um, it was a vapor lock. Um, I was there for quite a while. The guy had to come into my little RV, and we pushed it out of the way. Um, at that point, I, the, you know, the, the, the toads are in this container. They're making noise, and they're jumping around. I mean, yeah, I had a fishing license for them, but, I mean, this was Colorado, not Arizona. So I took them, and I put them in the toilet and put the cover down. You know, in, in an RV toilet, they can't go anywhere. They're just there, you know. It was fine. Um, I got out of the vapor lock. Um, for the future, just pour some water over your, your water pump and that usually will freeze it up. So I got out of that, I drove, was driving back home. And remember those little Garmin GPS machines? I had one of those. And my, my RV didn't um, tell me how much gas I had. So I always had to like do, it, do the math in my head and figure it out. And I could really only go like 150 miles or something before I had to get gas. And it, I mean, from Wasenberg to like Denver, it's 25. There's no exits at all. And so I'm driving down in my little garden thing. It starts to take, telling me to get off, get off the highway, get off the highway. You know, it was in Spanish. I didn't have it in English. So it was, you know, Tomala Esqueda. <laughs> He's yelling at me, get off, get off. So I finally get off and I go and I swipe and I get gas, right? And I, I look over and there's a pet smart. I'm like, yeah, I probably should get some crickets. That'd be a good idea. But I don't. I get back in the car. I mean, back in the RV, and I go about my way. About 20 minutes goes by. Same thing, you know. Um, Tomala rampa, you know. Get off here. Get off here. And I'm like, what? You know. I'm like, okay. So, so I get off, and I look, and there's this pet store, another pet store, and I'm like, okay, right. I'm gonna go get some crickets. So I went in there and I got I got 15 crickets. I came out and I put them in the toad thing. They're the gone in like five seconds. I'm like, ah. Right? I'm like, that's weird. Okay? So I ended up holding on to these toads for a year because my, my whole goal was to bring them back. And it was too late in the season by that time to do it. So, so I had them for an entire year. And it was the hardest medicine I ever had to hold. Um, and I'm talking about them themselves. Um, they're, they were pretty needy um, in a way. They're very, um, they're extremely trippy to look at. Their eyes are like looking at the flower of life, tens of thousand, you can just lose yourself into them. Um, but the hardest thing for me was that they would actually jump into my consciousness. They would come into my dreams. Um, there was a time when, um, you know, like a, a good herbalist that I am, I overtook my own cannabis medicine and was a complete amateur on the floor throwing up and literally, literally couldn't pick up a glass of water two feet away from me. And that day, the toads had jumped into my brain again. That day, um, I had been feeding them some crickets, and it was uh, late. 
they were the crickets were pregnant and they were all squishy. And as soon as I thought of you know the toads, I started thinking about the crickets. And yeah, I lost it. It was it was bad. But they were it was really hard medicine to hold. Um, I had them in a container in my house. Um, I lived in a A-frame. And so they were at the very top of the A-frame in the little room. So it was like a toad room, and you actually had to get into toad position to get, even go in and, and give them crickets. And I didn't name them or anything. I called them um, Los Sagrados Sin Nombre, um, meaning the sacred ones without names. And I never showed them to people or anything like that. And then a year later, I brought them back. Um, they were a little fat. I felt really bad about that. And I brought them back, and I let them go back to the same pond. Unfortunately, that pond is no longer carrying toads. But so yeah, that's my toad story. story about a trip from this week. Um, yeah, I'm going to talk about my mom a little bit. Um, my mom is the warmest, um, most beautiful, insightful, vivacious woman I've ever met um, in my entire life. And these past few years, her soul has been completely stripped of her through heavy use of drugs, not psychedelics to be specific. Um, uh, she has been struggling since I'm born, um, but through her times of sobriety, I've just seen such an incredible person. Um, she, um, she recently moved back to New York, which is where I'm from, um, and brought along my three younger siblings. Um, and the first few months of living with her again, after about five years of separation, were beautiful. Um, it really was just unreal. Um, almost too good to be true, considering all the dysfunction that had gone on prior. Um, a few months into her being into New York, she relapsed. And uh, for lack of a better term, I'm just watching her wither. And Watching the way she interacts with my younger siblings is heartbreaking compared to the way she uh, uh, interacted with my older sister and I. I remember her running through the aisles of Target with us and laughing and grabbing things and throwing things off hangers. Um, and now she has little to no patience for the three little ones. Um, we, my older sister and I, have taken on a lot of responsibility regarding um, our younger siblings, and I wouldn't take any of that back because um, it's building incredible relationships that we've lost over the years. Um, but there's been so much hate and resentment towards my mom. Um, you know, I picked up, I moved back into a house with her hoping things would be good, and now I... <clears throat> in such a messy situation, uh, to say the least. But um, I was leaving for Colorado about a week ago, and um, I think I told her about 30 minutes before my ride to the airport was coming, Mom, I'm going to Colorado for a week. And she was like, oh, uh, you're, you're leaving already? Um, I was like, yeah, I've, I've been talking about it for weeks, months, you know. Um, 
all my siblings knew I was leaving, and she said, okay, text me, text me when you land. Um, as if in my head I thought that really mattered to her. Um, so um, we came here, and I texted my dad, who's very involved, um, and I was like, you know, I'll send her a text. So um, I spent about a day and a half here, and I was tripping on psilocybin. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, at probably the peak of my trip, I received a text maybe 20 hours after I had sent her a message. Um, I felt my phone vibrate on the bed, and I looked at it, and it said, Mom. And my initial reaction was an eye roll. Um, and I opened my phone, and it said, okay, I love you. And, which is not uncommon for her, you know. Um, and in that moment, I realized that, yes, she's struggling, and she's not doing the best, but she's trying her best. Um, and I am just looking forward to going home and approaching her struggle differently and with a new mindset. And I know I can't fix it, but I am, the hate, the hate is gone. The hate is gone. So. So from a very, very early age, I've wanted to try LSD. When I was probably 10 or 11, I discovered Arrow, on which I would read lots and lots of trip reports on my little device, my little portable game device when I was supposed to be at bed. I believe bedtime was at 8.30, so it was some 9 o'clock. Each night, scrolling through Arrowhead, reading these crazy trip reports. Really, really interested in having this experience. Now, I lived in Houston, Texas, at which it was kind of commonly known not to take the LSD there because it wasn't LSD, generally speaking. At that time, we didn't know about drug checking, so I never bothered to do that. So I didn't have the opportunity to take LSD until I was, say, 22, uh, just a couple years ago, 24 today. Um, so, sorry, should I have said your name anonymously? <laughs> so generously offered to hold space for me. So we rented an Airbnb in Idaho Springs, found a source, a nice little purple piece of paper, I think it was purple at least, and we had a nice little intention-making session. We sat in meditation for about 10 minutes, and I ate the little purple piece of paper. Now, my first experience was not overwhelming, nor was it even anything that I would call really psychedelic. It was really subtle, but it was absolutely beautiful for many different reasons. The first thing I noticed was jaw pain and a subtle pain in my stomach. So Melissa, Melissa offered to make me some ginger tea. She brought me over the ginger tea, and as I took the mug from her, I got like flushed with this somatic gratitude for her giving me the tea. Now, not to assume that I take tea for granted at all points when I'm at baseline, but this reaction was not a baseline reaction, so I knew there was something going on. So later on, I'm just kind of looking for effects, and probably this proactive searching for effects was what was making it so subtle on my part. Alyssa had stepped outside into the snowy weather outside of this cabin, 
and saw this large wooden pentagram and yelled, what the fuck? I came outside and realized there's this giant wooden like pentagram made out of logs outside of our Airbnb. Very mysterious, and we never found out why that was there. But it, it made a good start to this. Yeah, it was a middle school history teacher. So that was interesting. So we went on our way, walked around the town, and if ever, anyone knows Idaho Springs, it's a relatively small town. Now, this dose wasn't a microdose because it was perceptual. I'd say it'd be a museum dose or even an antique store dose. And I say that because we ended up in an antique store and I was able to function just well enough to be okay in there and not knock anything over. <laughs> so we continue on and I'm still babbling that, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm feeling it, I don't know what's going on. And we come up to this, this door and this door, on this door I saw what looked like this really interesting artwork of mountains. I mean, do you see, this is really cool how this is kind of in the middle of nowhere on this, this door, it's just these cracked mountains. And she goes, no, that, that's just cracked paint. So somehow my brain had interpreted that, interpreted that as mountains, which is really interesting. So I knew something was going on. We eventually ended up at this little park, and I really wanted to go to the park and swing on the swings. And as we're swinging, there walks in this small park uh, a mother and her two young children. I was so excited to see kids. I'm waving at the kids, and her mother, the mother kind of pulls the kids <laughs> away. And I wish I realized, I'm that guy on drugs, waving at the children. <laughs> so we swing, and uh, at that swing set, I'd say, I'm assuming that's where the peak was, because we're swinging, and I'm in the air, and I was extremely embodied, and after we, we spoke about it, I said that was a transpersonal swing set experience, which we thought is a great name for a band, the Transpersonal Swing Set Experience. <laughs> so I'll fast forward to my next experience with LSD, which was also very subtle. However, this one had a, a little more visual effect to it. We were in the town of Marfa, Texas. Does anybody know Marfa, Texas here? Got a few, yeah. So Marfa, as Melissa says, is like straight out of a John Waters movie. It's in West Texas, deserty area, in the 1970s, this minimalist artist moved to Marfa and started erecting his own minimalist art. This kind of became a hub for young artists and hip folk to move to. It kind of became an alternative to Austin. So it's a small town, middle of nowhere, population, I don't even know, maybe a thousand or something, and just obscure stuff all over the place. So we're wandering this town and we end up in the city center, and that's during the come up. And this woman was very excited that we were there because obviously there was nobody visiting that day being that it was a summer weekday and it was excruciatingly, I'm sorry, actually it was a winter weekday, but it was still excruciatingly hot outside. <laughs> and so she's giving me paper after paper about information on the city. And this is during the come up and it's entering my bloodstream as this is happening. As she's handing me paper after paper, it's just giving me the stack and I'm becoming like, really overwhelmed at this point. We, we had to leave, we, we, were, we couldn't contain our laughter. So we exit, we exit the, uh, the city center, and I think we just wandered and saw some art exhibits. Eventually we made our way toward Fort Stockton. I think it was Fort Stockton is what it was called. Fort Davis, excuse me, not Stockton. Fort Davis is where uh, McDonald, McDonald Observatory is. Happened that at this night, there was a star party. So at a star party, they have all of their telescopes set up. And you could just pay a fee, get in, and the people working there will let you look through the telescopes. So there we were on 
pretty low dose of LSD, getting to see the most high-resolution images of different figures in space, including the moon, a few nebulas, some stars, and it really bonded us. And I could go on and on about this experience, but that had to have been one of the most profound experiences in my life, medicine-induced or not. And it was wonderful. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support us on Patreon. Unlike other crowdfunding platforms, Patreon allows you to pledge any amount you'd like per month. To say thanks, we have perks like blotter art, hemp t-shirts, Palo Santo, and some of the new chapters from my graphic novel series about marijuana that's based on Moby Dick and that we're calling Anandamide, or the Cannabinoid. Find out more at patreon.com slash symposia. Thanks to Matt Payne, who engineered the sound, to Joey Whip and California Smile, who made the music, and to Brian Norman, who produced the show.